Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. I wanted to speak tonight about the context within which we do this practice. As you probably know, the context of the practice is the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha was a being who lived about 2,500 years ago in India. One of the things that I've always found personally very compelling about this teaching is the fact that in all of the legends and all of the stories, the Buddha is always talked about as having been a human being. He was a human being who was compelled to ask certain questions. These questions defined his life. They defined his quest. They were questions that are very relevant to human life that any one of us might have. Questions like, what does it mean to be born into this human body as a baby, to be helpless, to be completely dependent upon others, and then to grow up, to grow older, to face old age, to face disease, to face death, whether we want to or not, in a way that is outside of our control? And how can we find some kind of happiness, some peace that is abiding, that is non-wavering, in the midst of that, the body being so out of control? He has questions in a similar way about the mind. What does it mean to have this mind that is a torrent of changing conditions so that in one day we can move from doubt to faith to fear to joy to love to anger not even in a day in an hour what does it mean to have a mind that is out of control where forces simply arise come into being and then pass away And how do we find happiness? How do we find peace? How do we feel at home in our own lives, given this torrent of change, this cascade of impressions that is constantly coming and going? It said that within the context of these teachings, he asked these questions very deeply. He devoted his life to the asking of these questions. And that any answers he came to, he came to through the power of his own awareness. They were not given to him. He cultivated the force of awareness so strongly that he could find these answers within. In just that same way, it is taught, each one of us has that potential as human beings to have the consciousness to ask these kinds of questions, not just to live mechanically, to ask these questions and to know the answers for ourselves through the power of our own awareness. This is our potential to have a very personal and intimate sense of the truth. It's called within Buddhism a self-witnessed truth because no one has given it to us. It comes through the force of our own understanding. This is also very powerful to sense that because no one has given it to us, no one can take it away from us. To have a sense of the truth for ourselves is the ground out of which faith grows. Otherwise, our faith is very uncritical. We are swayed as we are moved by different people, are inspired by different situations. 
To have a truly unwavering faith also means to have wisdom, to have understanding. So that it's not so conditioned, it's not so fragile, it's not so dependent on things being a certain way. We too have this potential to know the truth for ourselves. And that is why we come to an experience like this. A retreat is meant to provide the kind of environment that is most supportive of looking deeply at the nature of our bodies, our minds, our lives, and coming to some sense of resolution so that we do not feel victimized, we do not feel unsure and full of doubt or fear, but we have a sense of clarity and of faith as we move through our experience. A retreat isn't about adopting a set of beliefs, coming to terms with a Buddhist dogma or considering that one has become a Buddhist. It's not meant to be theoretical and it's not meant to be comparative, but rather as intense an experience as we possibly can have of coming to look at ourselves, to know ourselves, and to see the nature of things. The Buddha provided an outline or a path for this quest, for this questioning. Sense of path is very critical to our lives. Without it, we tend to move in wild fluctuations between doubt in certain situations and a very uncritical faith in another. As we try to comprehend our lives, as we try to understand the roots of our own suffering and our own happiness, we rely upon the sense of path. It's considered to be the greatest of gifts. Even if we are in a difficult situation, even if we're suffering a lot, with understanding, we can move out of it. We can have a different perspective on it. Without understanding, we are lost. There's a story about a deceased great Tibetan Lama named Trungpa Rinpoche, in which he was in a room full of people, and he took a very large sheet of paper, a white paper. Just in the middle of the paper, he drew a V-shaped object. He asked all of these people in the room, what is this a picture of? And said that all of these people looked at the, the picture and they said, oh, it's a picture of a bird. And Shrinkpurpache said, no, not exactly. It's a picture of the sky with a bird flying through it. This is what we mean by a different perspective. Even as we face the situations of our life, the instances of our life, the ups and the downs, we can hold it in different perspectives, and that makes all of the difference. The path that the Buddha taught is known as the middle way. It's known as the middle way because it avoids two extremes. The first extreme is overindulgence or over-reliance on the world of the senses for our most complete sense of happiness, our most complete experience of happiness. Because the world of the senses is constantly changing, because it's very fragile, it is considered quite unreliable for our most intense and perfect sense of wholeness, of peace. That is one extreme that we avoid. The other extreme is over asceticism or extreme mortification. In the time of the Buddha, particularly, there were many philosophical systems which said that if you torment the body enough, if you abuse it enough, if you mortify it enough, then somehow the spirit would soar free and the person would be liberated. And so people practiced very extreme forms of self-discipline. Nowadays, especially in our culture, we don't tend to go into this very much. We don't like the idea of extreme 
mortification. And yet we do tend to do it psychologically often, as though somehow we abused ourselves enough or debased ourselves enough or condemned ourselves enough, we would find freedom. Something would be liberated. We too would soar free. And so still we face these two extremes in one way or another. The middle way avoids both of these extremes because it's based on tremendous love and compassion for ourselves and for others, and it's based on awareness. It creates the kind of balance that is necessary in order to see the truth for ourselves. In seeing the truth, we are moving away from perhaps what is conventional, or what is familiar. And so it takes a great deal of balance and strength and courage to break free. I'm reminded of a story I recently heard about a friend of mine who had a young child. And at one point, she finally broke the news to her child that there was no Santa Claus. Her daughter said, are you Santa Claus then? And do you give me those presents? And her mother said, yeah. The daughter left the room. She came back and she looked at her mother and she said, are you the Easter bunny too? <laughs> and her mother said, yeah, I am. The daughter left the room. She came back. She looked at her mother and she said, are you the tooth fairy too? Her mother said, yeah, I do that too. She left the room. She came back, she looked at her mother and she said, is there a God? <laughs> well, here we are. You know, we have in fact been given a package. Great many legends have been woven around our experience. What is true? Can we, can we disengage from the familiar? Can we step away from what is known? Can we look clearly and cleanly, actually at what our experience is. That is why the balance is so necessary. We talk about this path as being a kind of ethical psychology, where the two poles, rather than being right and wrong or good and bad, are called skillful and unskillful. That which is skillful are those habits and actions and ways of being that lead to peace, that lead to wholeness, that lead to self-acceptance, that lead to self-transcendence, and lead to understanding. That which is unskillful is that which brings guilt, it brings confusion, it brings suffering, it brings a diminishing of ourselves rather than living up to our full potential. This path has many aspects to it. The first of these centers on a teaching of morality. It reflects the deepest love and care and concern that we could have for ourselves, for others, for our world. And it works on all different levels of our relationships, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to people, our relationship to the environment around us. The Buddha once said that if we truly loved ourselves, we would never harm another. Because what we see when we look carefully is that we are connected, we are very interconnected, that the things we do, they don't just disappear that what we think about, it really matters. It makes a difference. The things we care about, it truly matters. It does make a difference. That we need to live in harmony if we want to bring our lives into a spiritual truth. There's no such thing as something apart from a spiritual sense of ourselves because our lives are all of one piece. They are together. Everything is interwoven. There is no way truly to disregard our actions and our behavior and then to sit down in a formal posture on a meditation cushion 
and to experience freedom. It's all one thing. One of the ways in which the Buddha himself has been a very inspiring figure for me has been in this sense. I consider the Buddha to be a completely integrated being. I think many of us, if we looked at our lives, would say that what we experience mostly is a sense of separation or a sense of fragmentation, as though our lives were chopped up into these little arenas and areas not connected to one another, even though they truly are. We feel very fragmented and very cut off. And so we might experience ourselves to be very loving and very present, very caring when we're with people, but quite terrified when we're alone. Or the other way around, we may feel very together when we're alone, but very ill at ease when we're with people. Or we might feel that in terms of our family lives, we are truly living our deepest values. But in terms of work, things are very difficult and we feel cut off, we feel alone and confused, or the other way around. The Buddha exemplifies somebody who did not experience life in this way. His life was truly all of one piece. So that there were certain threads of motivation, of compassion and honesty and wisdom and caring that were true whether he was alone or teaching, whether he was wandering or staying still. In just that way, our lives really do have integrity. And if we look carefully enough, this is what we see. The Buddha taught morality in this way. He talked about it as the source of true beauty. Beauty being not necessarily the conventional understanding, but being radiance or light. And saying that if the heart is full of love and compassion, which is the inner state, the outer manifestation is care and connectedness, which is morality, then there is true beauty. What we do actually matters. And so on this path, we talk about morality as being the foundation. It means having certain commitments that we honor as best we can, not to harm others, because that is the same as harming ourselves. We talk about not harming others physically, which means not killing not harming others sexually, not being abusive, not being exploitative. We talk about not stealing, which also implies being careful with resources, accepting that which has been offered. We talk about not harming others verbally, seeing that our speech has tremendous power. It's not a question of these words just leaving our mouths and disappearing. It has a lot of effect in this world. We talk about not lying, particularly because of the delusion that gets woven when we tell a lie. I had an experience some time ago, which I think is a perfect illustration of this. I was living in a house with some friends, and a friend who lived nearby in the community decided that she wanted to go to India to practice meditation. But because she knew that her mother would worry about her a lot, she didn't want her mother to know she was going alone. She wanted her to think that she was being accompanied by her husband. So that's what she told her mother. She lied to her and said that she was going with her husband. She also told her mother that if any kind of emergency ever came up, she should call this number, and that was the number of the house where I was living with my friends. Sure enough, about 24 hours before my friend was due home, her mother called. The person who picked up the phone greeted her, and then my friend's mother said, have you heard from my daughter or her husband? The person who picked up the phone forgot that he was supposed to tell this lie, and so he blurted out, oh, yes, you know, her husband was just here for dinner. And then he stopped. <laughs> and he tried to make it all right. He said, well, 
You know, he went to India with her, but he had this business meeting, and so he came back early for it. And right away, this woman knew that something was off, something was wrong. She wasn't being told the truth. So she went into a panic. You know, what aren't you telling me? You know, she's sick. She's very sick. She's beyond sick. What's going on? My friend said, no, no, don't worry about a thing. You know, she's going to be home in another day or two, and, you know, everything's really all right. He hung up the phone. A few minutes later, a friend called who also lived in this community, this larger community, and she said, do you know who just called me? Our mutual friend's mother. Turned out that this woman was so ill at ease about what she'd been told that she thought, well, she'd just call around and see if somebody would actually tell her the truth. So this alerted us to the fact that what we had to do was call all of these people first so that they would know which lie to tell. So we began calling all of these people, you know, and we said, well, you know, this woman is going to call, and this is what you have to tell her, and, you know, it's a lie, but it's all right, you know. And we did. We called all of these people and told them which lie to tell. And then at one point, a stranger called. It turned out that this woman had enlisted the help of her neighbor, thinking that, well, maybe if we wouldn't tell her the truth, we'd tell someone else the truth. So then we had to call everybody again, you know, and say, well, there's this other person who's going to call, you know, and just do this. And right in the middle of this whole episode, we started receiving these anonymous, obscene phone calls. And it was, you know, how normally you might just not answer the phone, but we had to answer the phone because somebody might call and we had to tell them a lie. You know, it got to the point where... Somebody just gave up. One of our friends just, she could not bear it anymore. And she was talking to this woman's mother, and she said, you know, you're right. We haven't been telling you the truth. This is the truth. He never went to India. She's fine. She'll be home in a day. Don't worry about a thing. But there were two very interesting things that happened at that point. One was that this woman had been lied to so many times, she didn't believe the truth either. And the other very interesting thing was that I saw in my own mind that I had told so many lies by then that I didn't know what was true anymore. There's this kind of confusion that had grown, like, did he go to India? <laughs> What's going on? And I began to see, once again, the power of truth and what it means to deny that for oneself or for someone else. So it's in that light that we make this kind of commitment. We undertake it. We also talk about an intrinsic part of the path being what is called right livelihood. Once again, seeing that nothing is apart from a spiritual sense of ourselves, that we cannot engage for eight or ten hours a day in a livelihood that involves lying, for example, or harming and feel whole within, not feel fragmented when we undertake a spiritual practice. And so we look at the whole of life, of our relationships to ourselves, to the truth, to all beings. We once brought one of our teachers over here from, from India, and we asked him after he'd been around for some time what his perspective was on the spiritual scene in America. And mostly he was very positive. He did say one thing, though, that also struck home. He said that there was a tendency he saw here in the West that reminded him a bit of people sitting in a rowboat and with great earnestness and effort, they were rowing and rowing and rowing, but they also refused to untie the boat from the dock. And he said it was a little bit like that, he felt, in America, as people were striving diligently for great meditative experience, wonderful transcendence, going beyond space and time and the body and the mind. And they didn't care so much about looking at how they were speaking to people or how they were relating to people in a day-to-day -day way. How much compassion was there? How much kindness was there? How much presence was there? So this was his comment. We try to remember, rather than overlook it, that, that the path begins here, that it's, it's essential. This is the first aspect 
of this path, of this middle way. The second aspect has to do with this Pali word, which is known as bhavana. Bhavana is usually translated as meditation. But perhaps a more accurate translation of it would be bringing forth something. It's the cultivation of certain qualities, almost like giving birth. What we cultivate or what we give rise to, what we give birth to, is first of all concentration. As you have probably already noticed, the mind is often quite unconcentrated. It can be very, very scattered. We sit down, we give it a very simple task, it doesn't do it. We get lost in the past, we get lost in the future, we get lost in a dream, we get lost in a fog. What we do in the practice is we take all of this energy, which is scattered everywhere, and we gather it in. We make it at one. We bring it together. In this unification of the mind, as this energy is returned to us, we experience great joy. We experience great bliss. We experience this oneness of our being. We experience harmony. We experience power. Concentration is the empowering factor of the mind. There's tremendous power in concentrating the mind. It's what gives us the cutting edge of our awareness. It's like the difference between looking at something with a naked eye or looking at it under a very powerful microscope. It's that lens which focuses, which concentrates. We focus the mind and we bring it into balance. If our tendency or our tendency at a given moment is to be dull and insensitive, then we learn to wake up. If our tendency is to be agitated, to be restless, we learn to relax, to be at peace with what's happening. That's the first aspect of bhavana. The other, and fundamental to our practice, is the quality that is known as mindfulness. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. It's the observing power of the mind. It means to know quickly, to know deeply, just what is happening right now. The example is often used of the difference between taking a stone and throwing it in a body of water or taking a piece of cork and throwing it in the body of water. The stone will sink deep and the cork will just bounce around on the surface. Mindfulness is like that stone. It truly connects to what's going on in the moment. To know quickly, to know deeply, and to know directly what is happening in the moment. That means not to get lost in interpretation, not to get lost in judgment, not to draw conclusions about our experience, but to be fully present in as direct and simple a way as possible. The example that we use often to try to describe this was an instance that actually happened to me when I was in Burma once practicing. It was during lunch, and while eating lunch, I bit down on a whole chili pepper, and my mouth just caught on fire with this incredible stinging, burning sensation. It happened that I had an interview that afternoon with my teacher, Upandita. So at the beginning of the interview, I said to him, why is it that Burmese people like the taste of chilies so much? And he said, well, we don't like the taste of chilies. And I said, well, then why do you put them in the food? And he said that, well, we put them in the food because we believe that that stinging, burning sensation will clear the palate and is very good for digestion, is very good for health. We then went on to talk about two different levels of reality that we experience. One is the direct experience of the moment, and that is universal. That is that stinging, burning sensation. The other level of reality is everything that is built around that experience based on 
our experiences of the past, based on our belief systems, based on our hopes, based on our fears, based on our habits, based on our conditioning, based on the conclusions we draw about ourselves. It's an entire network. It's a superstructure that gets created. It's also a level of reality, and it's obviously useful in our lives. But it can be so consuming, it can be so fast in its arising, that we actually lose touch with what it's based on, that stinging, burning sensation. Now, so from what he told me, I would assume that a Burmese person would bite down on the chili, have the same sensation, and would think, oh, good, you know, here I am clearing my palate and aiding my digestion, and this is very good for my health. Whereas I bit down on the chili, and I thought, oh, no, you know, this is terrible for my health, and I don't know how much longer I should stay in Burma. Maybe I should go to Thailand. I heard they have salad in Bangkok, and you can eat salad in Bangkok. And, you know, I went one way, other people go another way. What we try to do in the meditation is to get as direct as possible, to peel away the hopes, the fears, the desires, the habits, the projections into the future, the comparisons to the past. What is happening right now? What is our actual experience? Mindfulness is also a state of knowing as completely as possible what is happening in the present. And that means we need to free the mind from certain conditioned forces, most particularly the forces of grasping and aversion and delusion. We talk about freeing the mind from grasping, which is the tendency to cling, to hold on, to try to make something stay. It's not a state that's flexible, that's open to change, that can see the big picture or the big context in which things are happening. It's very fixated, it's very narrowed. And so our sense of joy or happiness is also very narrowed in that moment. It was a time in my practice, not in my very early practice, which was very painful and difficult, but after some time when things got a little easier. And I would sit, I would feel these very lovely sensations in my body, like I was floating in the air, and I'd feel these very serene and peaceful mind states. I'd be sitting there, I was in India at the time, and I'd start to think, isn't it going to be wonderful living the entire rest of my life in this state? And I'd begin to fantasize how in five years or in ten years, I'd come back to the States, I'd be in New York, floating down the streets of New York, wearing my white sari, this very beatific smile on my face, in exactly that mind state. What happened? Half an hour went by, 45 minutes went by, and it changed. My knees started hurting, I got restless, I got bored, I got sleepy. But every time it changed, the first thing I asked myself was, what did I do wrong? You know, how could I have lost that sublime state? It wasn't that I had done anything wrong. It changed because things change. Everything changes all of the time. Conditions come together. They create a certain experience. They pass. They dissolve. Something else happens. This is the nature of our lives. And if we get attached to the pleasant experience as though we could fix it, as though we could make it stay, then we suffer. This is how it is. In just the same way, we can easily feel aversion for the unpleasant states. Aversion ranges from impatience to disliking to anger, to rage, to fear. It's striking out against unpleasant states as though we could control them. And yet, once again, our lives are this constant alternation of pleasure and pain, and gain and loss, and praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. This is how it is. Once, several years ago, I was hiking with many friends in California, we were hiking in the state park, and we decided that what we were going to do was walk in for three days and then retrace our steps back on the same route. 
On the third day, I was walking with his friend, and it turned out to be a day of many, many hours of constant, almost unremitting downhill walking. At one point, my friend and I were struck by this simultaneous realization. We both just stopped, and we looked at each other, and my friend said to me, in a dualistic universe, downhill can mean only one thing. <laughs> he was right. Because the next day, when we turned around, it was hour after hour after hour of uphill walking. This is how it is. Our lives are this constant fluctuation, and our practice reflects that. How could it be different than that? Sometimes it's downhill, and sometimes it's uphill. This is all natural. It's not a sign that something has gone terribly wrong. Just as in life, old age or disease or death are not a sign that something has gone terribly wrong. This is the nature of things. Either we open to this, or we resent it. We contract around it. I think in the very first retreat I ever did, or soon after, when I was having such a difficult time and things were so painful, I can remember at one point I kind of marched up to the front of the room and I sat down in front of my teacher and I looked him in the eye and I said, isn't there an easier way? And it was very funny because now looking back, of course, I recognized that he was a very, very compassionate person. And yet I asked him the question as though somehow, if I could only catch him off guard, I could get him to admit that, yes, there was an easier way, and he was choosing not to teach it because he liked to see people suffer, you know, and that he was really just playing with us and tormenting us because he enjoyed it. I looked him in the eye and I said, isn't there an easier way? And he just looked at me and laughed. What I remember most about that moment was looking in his eyes and seeing this incredible sense of timelessness. It was just so vast. It was that perspective of the sky with the bird flying through it. And I realized, as I have realized over and over again since then, that the Dharma is timeless. The practice is timeless. That it unfolds at its own rate. It's its own magic in a way that we can't control it, we can't demand progress, that it's happening, it's all working outside of our control. If we try to block out our unpleasant experience as though it meant failure, we are really blocking out a lot. It has nothing to do with having only pleasant experience. It has nothing to do with demanding. It's timeless. It's working in its own way. The other characteristic that we notice a lot and that impedes the quality of mindfulness is that of delusion. Very often we feel this kind of missing, the sense of not being in touch, of being disconnected, when our experience is basically neutral. When things are very pleasant, we wake up because we want to hold on to it. When things are very unpleasant, we also wake up because we want to push it away. We want to see if we can dismiss it or separate from it. When things are neutral, we often fall asleep. Think about how many simple moments of our lives of seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or thinking, having an emotion, where we blank out, we're just not in touch because it's not hitting us over the head. It's not striking enough to catch our attention, that our attention has gotten so dulled out that we need something intense for us to wake up. Also in my very early practice, when I was first doing this particular technique of meditation, I was living in this compound in India. I was given the instruction to try to make a mental note of everything that was predominant in my experience all day long. I discovered that the single most common note that I was making as I was walking around this compound 
was that of waiting. I was just kind of doing whatever, going around saying, waiting, 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 waiting. And one day I said to myself, what are you waiting for? And I realized that what I was waiting for was something important enough or something significant enough or something spiritual enough to happen so that I could note it. It was a little bit like being a tape recorder with the pause button on. And this is no way to live our lives. There's no sense of fulfillment in this. And I think it was somewhat in this sense in which the Buddha said that heedfulness or mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Those who are heedless or those who are mindless are as if dead already. If you think about all of the moments in our lives that it's unpleasant or it's difficult or it's painful and we try to push it away, you think about all the moments of our lives that are neutral and we just space out, we miss it, that gets to look like a pretty big accumulation of our lives and what is left. You know, those moments when we feel present, when we come awake, which we call the good times and we really cherish. It doesn't need to be that way. We can be fully present. We can be open. We can be connected to all of our experience, to the full range, the pleasant, the painful, and the neutral. And that is our practice. We also talk about mindfulness in the sense of knowing what is happening concretely, to know it truly, to know it pragmatically. I think often of quotation from Krishnamurti in which he said freedom is now or never it's right now it's not something that we will experience someday in the far off future or that was relevant in a long ago time in a far away place with the Buddha or the great sages of Asia freedom is now or never it is experienced, it is expressed through our every moment, or not at all. It is either here or we're thinking about something else. We are not manifesting it. I also think of a condition that I experienced time my practice back to when I was experiencing the pain and the difficulty. I had a teacher who would often talk about a particular teaching of the Buddha which is known as the Wheel of Dependent Origination. It's quite a complex and intricate teaching. But one part of it, which is perhaps the heart of it, the Buddha talks about the ways in which we experience the world. We experience it through seeing and hearing and tasting, touching, smelling, and through the mind door, through thoughts and ideas, emotions. He said that Every one of those moments has a certain element to it of being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And that our conditioned tendency when things are pleasant is to cling, is to hold on tight. When things are unpleasant, to push away, to strike out against it. When things are neutral, to be deluded, to be confused, to miss it. And that right in that moment, we have bondage or freedom. If we can experience the pleasure fully without clinging, there's freedom. If we can experience the pain fully and be open to it without condemning, without fear, there's freedom. If we can experience the neutral experience fully without the delusion, there's freedom. My teacher would speak about this and I would be sitting there in the room, and I would have this amazing inner dialogue going on, which ran something like, I'd hear him speak, and I would think, boy, that's so inspiring. You know, this is the most amazing teaching I've ever heard, that in a single moment you can really experience freedom. If only I could get rid of this knee pain, I know I could really go far in this practice. And he would go on, he would kind of elaborate you know, about how it's all of these different senses and it's every moment and the pleasure and the pain and the neutrality. And I would sit there and think, 
It's so amazing. I've never been so inspired by anything in my life. I must have been a Buddhist in a previous life. You know, to have this kind of affinity with this teaching. If only I could get rid of this knee pain. I know I could get enlightened so soon. And he would go on, he would elaborate, and I would start to think, boy, this is so amazing. Maybe what I should do is I should go down to that yoga ashram I heard about in South India and I'll really stretch out my body and I'll come back in six months and I won't have any pain and then I could get enlightened. It just grew and grew and grew until one day, many months down the road, it was like I woke up and I realized that what he was talking about and in fact what the Buddha had been talking about was my knee pain. Here was an experience in the moment that was unpleasant. How was I relating to it? Was there grasping? Was there aversion? Was there delusion? Was there bondage? Was there freedom? Instead of waiting for the day when I could trade in my experience for something better, I came back to opening to it just as it was and honoring it, respecting it rather than feeling that it was irrelevant. It was a burden. It was a curse. It was the truth of the present moment. Could I be mindful of it or not? The Buddhist teaching is not remote. It's not abstract. It's not highly philosophical or idealized. It is this very experience right now. Are we aware of it? How are we relating to it? There is freedom. We pay attention in this way so that we can see the underlying truths for ourselves. It's not to become passive. It's not to become inert. You know, sometimes people have that fear that they will lose all feeling as they practice meditation or become more spiritual. It's the sense that you know, the, the pain will dissolve, the pleasure will dissolve, and there'll be just this gray amorphous blob. But it's not like that. You know, we live life fully. We experience everything deeply. We're moved by it and it moves us. But not with these conditioned reactions which keep us bound. That is how we discover the truth, is by letting go of all of this conditioning so it can reveal itself. It's like we have to get a little bit quiet for the truth to reveal itself. There's a lot that we sense in silence that we cannot perceive when we are full of noise, full of chatter, full of confusion. The truth as we talk about it is not theoretical. It's not cognitive, although that's wonderful to have a theoretical understanding. But rather we talk about a kind of intuitive opening, what we call a silent, wordless understanding into the truth of the nature of this body and of this mind. It's very simple, this practice. In fact, it's said that when the Buddha taught, he always taught in a way that even a seven-year-old could understand what he was saying. And perhaps in a reflection of that, it's said that the Buddha had many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. It's almost as though what we have to do in undertaking the practice is discover the seven-year-old within give that little being a little room. Allow it to be present. The practice is very simple. It's not so easy to do because we are facing all of this conditioning because we tend to complicate things enormously. But in its essence, it is very simple. One of the most powerful images for me that the Buddha used was when he talked about how a bucket of water gets filled drop by drop. And he said, in just that same way, the mind gets filled moment by moment or drop by drop. It gets filled with qualities like love or compassion or wisdom or mindfulness, just drop by drop. And I often have this image of myself as standing by the bucket, either fantasizing about how wonderful it's going to be once it's filled or dreading how much more there seems to be to go, to fill it up. And not taking the time, not being simple enough, not being humble enough or patient enough to just put in the next drop. 
Yet actually that's how it all happens, is drop by drop. It's moment after moment. There is no moment of mindfulness that's wasted. It's, okay, this moment, let me, let me just put in that drop. It all means something in the end. If we can be patient enough, if we can be simple enough, not to lose touch with the power of just this moment and being mindful. I want to close with a quotation from Chuang Tzu, who says, There was a person who was so displeased by the sight of their own shadow and so displeased with their own footsteps that they determined to get rid of both. The method they hit upon was to run away from them, so they got up and ran. But every time they put their foot down, there was another step, while their shadow kept up with them without the slightest difficulty. They attributed their failure to the fact that they were not running fast enough, so they ran faster and faster without stopping until they finally dropped dead. They failed to realize that if they merely stepped into the shade, their shadow would vanish. If they sat down and stayed still, there would be no more footsteps. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste. Namaste.